Welcome to Pathways. I'm Randy Brutquitz, and today we're talking with Dr. Marie Kerbeshin. Since receiving her doctorate in zoology from the University of Texas, Marie now serves as vice president in the Office of Technology Commercialization at the Indiana University Research and Technology Corporation, or IURTC. Let's learn how her education in the biological sciences guided her toward a career in technology commercialization and how she integrates her experience with the expertise she's garnered through assisting innovative startups in entrepreneurial management. Marie, welcome to Pathways. No, oh, thank you, Randy. All right, here we go. We're gonna start right from where you're working now. Okay. And tell us what exactly is a vice president for technology commercialization? What's a typical day for you look like? Sure. So universities in the past couple of decades have recognized the importance of taking an active role in making sure that the wonderful research that goes on in the laboratories and the halls of the university has many outlets to benefit the public. Uh, traditionally, this has been done through publications, through educating students, uh, but there are a lot of wonderful discoveries that happen in Indiana University's laboratories. And the Technology Commercialization Office works with faculty and other researchers at the university to get these discoveries into the hands of companies where they can be developed into products that can benefit the public. What's a typical day for you look like? I mean, you gave us big picture mm -hmm. on, on what your role is and what uh, the job the IURTC does. But for you, typical day. Sure. So uh, I have a staff um, that is educated in both the sciences um, as well as business and intellectual property law. So we reach out to faculty um, across the campuses, learn about their research, help them identify if the research they're doing uh, might have an invention. If there's an invention there, we help them describe it we analyze it. So is this invention something that a company would want to put on the market? If so, can we get protection around it? And by that I mean uh, intellectual property protection, patents, copyrights. Uh, if that's the case, we'll start those two processes going. So we have people in the office who work with patent attorneys to get patent protection. And we have people in the office who work with businesses that might be interested in these innovations. So it's a lot of connections, a lot of phone calls, a lot of connecting uh, corporate business development types with our faculty at the university. So you get to serve as a facilitator, a, a conduit to, make, to help make those connections. Absolutely. So the whole process comes comes together. Yes, it's, uh, you know, we, we think about it as science and business and law, but I mean, when you get down to it, it's really uh, connections and communications and networking. Great. So let's go right back to the very, very beginnings for you. Your undergraduate degrees in biological science. Mm -hmm. And have you always been interested in science? I guess what I like to do is ask all our guests on Pathways is, when were you bitten by the book? Oh, eighth grade biology class. <laughs> so uh, in, in eighth grade, uh, you know, we were taking a lot of physiology 
And you know, you'd learn about the respiratory system, you'd learn about the digestive system, you know, have the skeleton, the muscles. And you know, it was just kind of in the middle of that class, uh, we're learning about all these different parts. And it was like I woke up one day and figured out on my own, oh, these systems aren't independent things. They all come together as a whole. You know, we need to breathe and we need to eat so we have energy and that's why the muscles go. And, and I guess I was so delighted at, at, um, at that picture, at being able to put that picture together that I've been interested in biology ever since. Uh, good, I've been bitten by a bug story. <laughs> You went directly from your undergrad to a, a PhD mm -hmm. at, at UT Austin. Yep. Now, had your experience in undergrad really directed your decision towards for doctoral education? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, when I started my undergraduate career, I knew I was interested in biology, uh, but really didn't know what you can do with it. And most of the, the students in the classes around me, um, honestly, were focused on pre-med. And, you know, I started down that route thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's a possibility. But as I took courses and took laboratory courses and started talking with my professors, I got interest, uh, interested in the world of research. You know, that there were careers beyond, um, you know, pursuing an MD degree. And that's when I started to take a look at graduate education. So you jumped, you jumped right in, and, and when you entered graduate school, you thought, all right, I'm going to get a PhD. Mm -hmm. Where do I want to be 10 years after getting my PhD? So what was going through your mind when you entered graduate school in terms of what your ultimate career goal mm. would be? Very interesting question, um, because looking back on it, and, and this was years and years ago, and I'm not going to tell you how many years, <laughs> uh, but Back then, there really was no discussion of alternative career paths. Um, in the, the graduate program, it was kind of assumed everyone would be getting their PhD um, and then would be applying for tenure-track positions at research-intensive universities. Uh, I had a few colleagues in my cohort um, that started to take a look at, uh, you know, uh, environmental consulting jobs. Being in a zoology department, we had a little bit more uh, diversity in the background of science uh, that we were looking at. But honestly, at that point, I was really thinking about, okay, I'm going to go and get a tenure track position. And I started down that pathway, uh, you know, after my uh, PhD, uh, took a postdoctoral position and uh, continued on the research pathway there. Yeah, I, and I think that's still a common story for folks where they come into a PhD program and they just think, yeah, I wanna be a faculty member and mm -hmm. I need to, I'm going down the career steps to get me there. So you went and you did a, a, a postdoc mm -hmm. and at that when you entered, as you mentioned, you're thinking, yes, I'm taking the first steps to work my way towards a tenure track faculty yep. position. But things changed. Yes. Um, you know, I enjoyed the research very much, uh, but taking a look at what everyone around me was doing to get to that point, uh, recognizing that a lot of the people I was working with in the lab were on their second and some third postdocs, uh, that, um, that very few of us were um, 
And I would say the word timely uh, in terms of a, a, a long career, timely getting those positions. And I was at a point in my life where it's like, okay, do I do another postdoc um, and see if I want to then go out on the job market? Or do I start taking a look at other things? And so I was very interested in keeping my options open. So continued with my postdoc while I started to research uh, alternative careers. And so you started researching those <laughs> and you had really an oppor a unique opportunity in terms of, if I recall, your postdoc mentor. Yes. Was in a certain position that kind of opened a door for you. Yes, Can absolutely. You tell us about that. So my postdoctoral mentor was also the vice president of research for the university. And, and I always look back at it and think, you know, how naive I was about how universities work. Because to me, the fact that he was also VPR meant that, um, you know, he just wasn't at lab meeting enough. You know, he had this other thing he was doing on the side, and I had no idea what it was. Uh, but as I had been exploring careers, I had become aware of this whole area of patenting academic discoveries and technology transfer. And uh, so I went and I met with my advisor and talked with him you know, about my desire to explore alternative careers um, and that I'd heard about this patent thing but didn't know much more about it. And it turns out that at the university, that whole function reported up through him. Uh, so he, he directed me to the office on campus and said, well, if you're interested in exploring it, here's the group that you should talk to. So that was an opportunity to, for, for you having been in a VPR's lab, mm -hmm. but what about other PhDs or postdocs, let's say, or even PhD students where you were at? Did they have those types of opportunities as well? They're, they could explore tech transfer or any other aspects that would be under the VPR's umbrella? Absolutely. You know, one of the, the things that uh, we did in the office that I joined and we still do now at, at our office, uh, we take a very active role in bringing people into the profession. Um, it's not like when you're a little kid you think, oh, I'm going to grow up and be in technology transfer. Uh, so what we find is that we have to do a lot of recruiting into the profession. So a lot, of, a lot of training, a lot of internships, and that is one of the ways that most people enter the profession. Um, they're scientists, they want to stay close to science, they enjoy that, but for whatever reason, um, a laboratory career is something they don't want to pursue, or, or even the traditional academic career. Uh, so as they look around, they tend to reach out to tech transfer offices and come and learn about what we do. And um, many of our offices have strong um, uh, programs for introducing people to the profession. So that's during their training program, mm -hmm. while they're training. Mm -hmm. How about pushback, say PI pushback? Yeah. So what can you tell us a little bit of the things that you had say heard of, obviously you didn't experience that because you had a very supportive postdoctoral mentor, mm -hmm. but for, for others that where you heard maybe even some horror stories, I can imagine people listening in 
would say, well, I don't know if my PI would ever let me do something like that. Yeah, and, and that, that is an issue. And it's actually also something that we in our office have to be conscious about uh, because we also don't want to be seen as, oh, don't let your graduate students or postdocs go talk with Marie and her crew <laughs> because who knows what they'll get into. Uh, we, we do tend to make sure that we get buy-in from the PI um, before we bring someone on. And in the majority of cases, it hasn't been a problem. Uh, we're very upfront about the time commitment, um, and different offices have, have different time commitments. We tend to request that you be able to commit to a long period to working with us um, over, say, like the course of a year. Uh, mostly because uh, what I'm teaching you today, frankly, I'm not going to get the benefit out of your work until you've been doing it about eight months or so. Mm. Um, but we also recognize that you, are really, you really need to be working in the lab and getting your degree. So we tend to modify that as well. You know, certainly we're not expecting for, you know, 20 hours a week with those sorts of things. You know, it, much, it is much more kind of the six hours type every week. Uh, so you can tend to work that around your other schedule. But it is really something that the, uh, the student has to work out with their advisor. And be committed to if you're talking six only six hours a week, mm -hmm. but for a long period of yeah. time, to one allow them to really know, is this what I would really like to do? Yep. And for you, well, it has to be a two-way street where you get some benefit out mm -hmm. of their efforts yeah. as well. So that's that's really helpful. After your postdoc, what happened? What'd you do? So, so I plunged right into technology transfer. And I had actually a very fortunate uh, circumstance in that actually my postdoctoral advisor wasn't sure if I would like it. Um, and he told me, well, go ahead and give it a try. Uh, if you don't like it, he said he'd hold my position um, as a postdoc open for six months. I mean, so how can you not take the plunge? It was, it, it was a wonderful safety net that a lot of people don't have. And I started the position um, with a lot of preconceived notions that, that turned out not to be true. What was the position? So I was a licensing assistant in the technology transfer office, so an entry-level position. And I thought that I would, you know, I knew that I would love the science and working with the faculty. Um, I thought that, okay, I can handle the business side. Um, you know, I, I was worried I might be a little bit reserved. You know, certainly the scientific profession, uh, you know, attracts people who are used to working on their own, on their own projects. And I wasn't sure, oh, am I gonna be able to pick up a phone and call someone? Um, well, I knew I could do it. I didn't know if I would like it. Uh, <laughs> I really thought, though, that I would dislike the legal part. Um, to me, as coming at it from a scientific standpoint, I looked at it as science is the truth. The legal stuff, oh, that's just some sort of rules that people write up. There's no truth there. Uh, but when I got into it, I actually found I was quite attracted to it. Um, because it is, it's, it's a set of rules and it's a set of puzzles. So if you're working with a company and I'm trying to get the company to take an interest in our university's technology, 
I have certain things that I need, you have certain things that you need. They may not completely mesh, but there's this, this kind of this dance, this puzzle to figuring out how we can both get what we need and both of us be moderately happy. So I, I found that that was a lot of fun and my scientific training was actually quite useful in that. And I'm gonna ask you about that again in terms of your scientific training and using that. You start off very ground level as an assistant. Mm -hmm. I think at that time you also became a registered patent agent. Yes. What yes. is a registered patent agent and how <laughs> did that help you in your job and in, in what realm was that or what part of the job that you did did you use that? Sure. So in the United States, if you're going to practice um, anything that's kind of close to law, in most areas you have to go to law school and um, get your law degree and then you sit and you pass um, the bar exam in your state. There are actually two areas of law in this country where you need uh, specialized training uh, to be able to work in those areas. One of them is maritime law and one of them is patent law. And it turns out that in the realm of patent law, it's actually more important to be a scientist than it is to be a lawyer. So you can study patent law and you can take this bar exam, the patent bar, um, and the, the absolute requirement is that you have a scientific degree. If you study for the exam and pass, and you're an attorney, you can call yourself a patent attorney. If you didn't go to law school, but you take this exam and pass, then you can become what's called the registered patent agent. So a patent agent can write patent applications and work with inventors to get those patents issued at the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Um, the biggest, two biggest differences between a patent attorney and a patent agent are a patent attorney can do more. So, you know, um, get into legal suits over patents and, and do that sort of thing. The other big difference is a salary one. You're getting a, getting a premium for being the attorney over the, the patent agent. Now, when I studied for the patent bar and then passed it and became a registered patent agent, my intention wasn't to write patents. Uh, but it was a way for me to learn patent law, to understand it, and then to be able to work with my faculty inventors uh, so that when they came to me and talked about their invention, I would be able to understand what kind of intellectual property protection we could get. So it's not a requirement, um, but it's certainly something that uh, you can do with a scientific degree and uh, that gives you, honestly, a little bit more credibility when you're working with the faculty, that you know what you're doing when you're advising them. Mm -hmm. So you have the street creds in the sense of being a scientist, but you also have the street creds in terms of patents, yep. where you know the lingo and the process and can do that. So now you talked about how you have a science degree and you, you pass this bar exam mm -hmm. and you're a patent agent registered patent agent. What kind of training did you do for that? You just studied for the bar? Did you yep. have any course that you just studied for the bar? I, um, so 
what I did is I purchased, and this is again will date me, a set of uh, VHS tapes um, that was a, a patent review course. And um, basically the, the exams are, it's kind of like studying for the SAT or the GRE. There's an exam that you take, they kind of recycle questions. Um, so it's uh, with this, this um, online VHS uh, course, it was probably about a solid 20 hours of lectures and then practice exams and studying. Uh, so it's, it's anything that a, um, a good student who has time and dedication can do. No, it's, you used your, your science background in these different positions because when you talk to faculty in terms of their, their inventions, mm -hmm. you brought the scientific background there and also because you bridge patents yep. with that knowledge and certification, really, as well as your, your scientific background, you're using your doctoral education. Today, how are you using your doctoral education in your current job? So one of the things that is, is um, critical in this area uh, is the basis of the science that we're working with is very different than, say, if I were working in, in a company. Um, in a company, uh, there, the, the science tends to be very directed, top-down, um, often starting with a problem, looking for a solution. Uh, here in this position, we're really looking at um, a lot of researchers who are doing great science, but it's all independent, so who knows what's going to come in the door. And because of the nature of university research, it's all very basic research. Um, even in the, the fields of medicine where there's an end goal in sight, we're really looking quite early, say at pathways, at receptors. Um, so one of the things that we have to do on a day-to-day -day basis is take a look at this basic science that's coming in. And the faculty may have a good idea of what the end goal is, but it's important for us to take our science and be able to translate that into something that someone in business development in a company could understand. So even though we're not at the bench, um, we're really taking the results of the research and being able to craft it in a package that someone who uh, does science in a corporate setting can understand. So I think that really gets at another question that you had actually mentioned earlier about how important communication is. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that from your perspective in terms of being able to communicate as a scientist and as one who has to communicate, translate science oh, yes. to those who are not scientists. Yes, and, and that is crucial because in in keeping these relationships going, um, we are often the ones that are able to interpret for the two sides. Uh, so, so with the faculty at the university, uh, we need to, to take a look at the science and, uh, for example, if we're looking at getting a strong patent and the faculty member has done two experiments, uh, we need to be able to take a look at what patent law is and say, this is a good start, 
but for us to get a really strong patent, we're going to need these three other experiments. And for me to say that to someone who's a faculty member, I need to be aware of how things work in a university. What am I asking of this person? Uh, you know, is there funding available to do those experiments? How long will that take? On the same side, when I talk with someone on the business side, um, they're going to be asking me things that are very important for, say, drug development. So, so, the, so the basic research might be fine, but they're going to need to be able to know, um, are these in vitro studies? Are there, is there animal data? At what level um, has anyone done any toxicology screening? And so one of the things that I find is when I convey the information and get parties together, uh, I need to make it clear to everyone that we're not criticizing what's going on, but that what's important in this realm and what's important in this realm aren't necessarily the same. And I'm trying to facilitate, can we come together so that both parties can get what they need out of the relationship? So uh, one of the things that's really important, I think we, and we mentioned this a little bit in terms of the communication aspect, you have, we think of a certain way or we communicate a certain way as, as a scientist. Mm -hmm. You've had brought somebody in who's a PhD into your office, into even technology transfer writ large, and they have difficulty speaking in terms that a non-scientist can understand. Mm -hmm. What opportunities, what processes do you have for that particular person to help them build some communication skills to help make them effective? Sure, and it's, it's, it's a constantly evolving process for, for everyone. So for example, um, when we have someone new in the office um, who has a strong scientific background but not much experience in technology transfer or you know, often in any other realm, uh, we start out with kind of a combination of, of, of hand-holding, so having that person go to meetings with someone who's more experienced, but also starting them out kind of on, on a comfortable path. So um, I, if, if, if I were working with you, here's a new uh, invention description I have from a faculty member. Um, you know, Randy, could you write up for me a, a two-paragraph summary of that invention that we can put on our website and that we could use to send to companies. And, and we'll get that and the red pens will come out. You know, it's just like when you write your first manuscript uh, draft and you give it to your uh, um, PhD advisor and it comes back bleeding red. You know, that's just part of the process. Uh, we will also have um, kind of steps to have uh, people in our office start pitching to companies, again, with someone who's more experienced, but then on their own, um, both locally and then getting into regional and national conferences where, you know, scientists and business people come together. Great. We have PhD students, we have postdocs listening in, and question they would have is, well, I'm not really sure what I want to do with my career, but technology transfer sounds pretty interesting and I'd like to maybe think about it. What should they be doing right now to really th think about a potential 
career path in technology, commercialization, technology transfer, mm -hmm. or, or even a, any other non-academic career? Yeah, I think the, the, the first thing, um, and, and we do this all the time, are kind of the informational interviews. So, you know, contact me or someone in my office, uh, come over and chat with us. And what I find is that a lot of people, when they first approach a tech transfer office, have some, um, you know, either no conception or some preconceptions that aren't quite right. And one of the things that I can do early on is to kind of direct you um, to, oh, that's interesting, but that's not what we do. Perhaps if you're really interested in writing patent applications, you should be talking with a patent attorney, and there are several in town who might be interested in talking with you. Or, oh, that's, that also is interesting. That sounds much more like uh, bench work in a company or bench work in a startup company or business development in a startup company. Again, we work with those people, but that's not what we do. I can direct you there. Uh, so I think the informational interview is the very first step uh, to figure out, well, is it, is it tech transfer in a university setting, or is it more corporate engagement, or is it more law? And that, that, that can help me direct you to, yes, you're at the right place to talk about it, or, well, that's not really what we do, but here are the people who do that. Great. One last question. Is there a question that you think I should have asked you, but I didn't? Um, I think the biggest is what not to do. Uh, one of the, and I don't necessarily know if this is a mistake, but I've seen a lot of students fall into this, where when you're getting a, a graduate degree, it's, I don't know if I want to say formulaic, but the pathway is kind of laid out. So, you know, you're, you're a high school student, you fill out applications, you go to college, you take these courses, you fill out an application, you take some exams, you get into your graduate program. And there are people like you who help guide students through the program. So I think one mistake that people make when they're looking at alternative careers is to think, oh, I need more formal education. So if I want to get into tech transfer, oh, maybe I should find like a master's program that, that gives me that background. Or, oh, I need a law degree to do this. And, and I think for those of us who've been in academia for, frankly, almost our entire lives, the answer is, that comes to mind is get another degree. And in terms of breaking into tech transfer, that's actually not the most effective thing to do. And, and in a lot of alternative careers, it isn't. So one of the things I do tell people is if you're interested in tech transfer or any alternative career, start taking a look at what the job ads are posting for. Um, and you can see, especially in tech transfer at universities, it tends to be all over the place. Um, some schools do like to hire lawyers. Uh, some schools do want to see business experience or an MBA. Um, in our office, we, we value the scientific background and then perhaps with some um, experience on the ground, whether it's an internship or, or time working in industry. Uh, you know, so, so be careful about 
the knee-jerk reaction of, oh, I got to go get another degree, let me find an academic program to prepare me. Because you may find that you've spent money and you've spent time and it really doesn't give you as much a leg up as an internship or, um, you know, going out and, and trying another career. That's a great piece of advice to end with. So thank you, Marie. Oh, absolutely, Randy. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Marie Kerbeshian, for sharing her story of the steps she took from earning a PhD in zoology to becoming the vice president of the Office of Technology Commercialization at the Indiana University Research and Technology Corporation. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website and on iTunes under Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another biomedical PhD degree holder which landed them in their current and very exciting non-academic position. I'm Randy Rutcliffe. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.